Welcome to Culture Matters, a podcast exploring the intersection of faith and culture. My name is Adam Hawkins, and I'm joined today by my co-host, the real host, Elizabeth Woodson. <laughs> Elizabeth, how are you doing? I'm doing well, Adam. Good. Yeah. Good. I'm glad to hear it. You said you're a little tired. What have you been up to? You know, I was just came back from Houston, and I have another trip this weekend. And so I traveling, I've had to find my rhythms. Yeah. And so the day I come back from something usually involves a really long nap. That's good. Naps are beautiful. They restorative. are restorative. Good. Yeah. Well, we're super excited for today's topic and today's guest. We're having a conversation on gender with Dr. Abigail Favalli. She's a writer and professor in the McGrath Institute for Church Life at the University of Notre Dame. She frequently speaks and writes on women and gender, and she wrote the book we're going to be talking about today, The Genesis of Gender. Uh, Abigail, Dr. Favalli, welcome to the show. Glad to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, super excited. Well, let's just dive right in because there's a lot I want to talk about, um, and I think there's a lot of wisdom to be gained uh, today. And so maybe as a launching point, just kind of getting our feet wet, um, why did you write the book? What was your hope for it? Uh, yeah, what piqued your interest to be writing on this topic? Well, gender is a longstanding area of interest for me all my adulthood, really. Mm. Um, that said, I actually set out to write a different book. And I started to write a book about Christianity and feminism. Okay. But then when I got to trying to talk about gender, it just kept growing and gro the chapter on gender was just like growing and growing. And then it started eating the whole thing. And I thought, ah, I think I need to write a book about gender because this was in, let's see, when I actually was writing it, it was 2019, 2020. Okay. You know, and this was when the first wave of detransitioners came out. Mm -hmm. so there was a lot going on. Um, and I remember thinking, I don't know, by the time this book comes out, you know, it might have I might have missed the boat on this topic. And as it turned out, I'm like, no, that's actually not the case. It's <laughs> right. just, as, just as hot and fraught as it ever has yeah. been. So um, yeah, so that's that's how I how I wrote on it. But I have an academic background in gender studies. Um, and then I grew up, I grew up Christian, evangelical, mm. and then kind of went through what is now called a deconstruction process, which I just didn't have that terminology at sure. the time. Um, and then so for my 20s, I was very much immersed in kind of postmodern thought, feminist thought, gender theory, got my PhD in that area, and then came back to Christianity, uh, specifically in the Catholic tradition. And so since then, which is about almost 10 years ago now, which is crazy, I've been writing on these same topics that I've studied for so long, but from um, a, a Christian understanding of reality. It's beautiful. You, you, you talk about that in the book as well. You give us sort of an introduction to your background. Um, but I wanted to just comment too, um, you didn't abandon the project of talking about feminism altogether in the book because you do actually give a pretty good survey. It was very informative for me and really, really helpful. And I think, you know, it's interesting to hear that as you approach gender, the, the you know, it kind of ate the book. But in a way, I think you did such a good job of marrying those topics, of helping me see how feminism uh, engages with, and in, in the different kind of waves of feminism, engage with topics of gender as well. It was super informative for me, really, really helpful. Cool. We're going to be largely talking about the book. We're going to be largely talking about gender. And so I'm going to ask a question that I feel like is going to be really, really hard to answer. But um, 
could you maybe define the term gender and then maybe even terms that some of our listeners might be more familiar with, like things like gender roles? You know, I, I know that's really open ended, but as, as best as we can do. Yeah. Sure. OK, so le- how about this? I'll give you a quick tour of several definitions of Super gender helpful. on offer. Yes. OK, so I would say there's, first of all, the pretty typical person on the street understanding, which is just to use gender and sex interchangeably. Right. Right. So it's, it's almost like a more socially polite way of saying sex, because now sex means this whole other thing that you often don't want to talk about right. when you're like filling out a DMV form or whatever. <laughs> yeah. So it's like gender just means, you know, male and female, whether you're a man or you're a woman. Right. That's that's kind of the, the understanding is to use them interchangeably. Then in um, then there's another idea of gender, which is the kind of gender is a social construct view. And this is a view I talk a lot about in the book. It's definitely a view that's come out of feminist theory. And that view is basically that um, what it means to be a man and what it means to be a woman is primarily kind of a script that is created by society. Mm -hmm. And so the more extreme versions of this perspective would say that's all that it is, Mm. right? That even um, so that gender isn't really anything but this kind of oppressive script that we just need to throw off and free ourselves from, right? So woman is a construct, man is a construct. And then a more recent, I think, emerging view is gender as gender identity. So this view sees gender as this deep-seated sense of self that in this perspective is the ground of whether one is a man or a woman. So it's not really about bodily sex. it might even be at odds for some people, right? But what really matters, what determines whether you're a man or a woman, what determines your gender is your gender identity, that subjective self-perception. Um, and then there's the view I think that I hold, I guess, which would be kind of a take on the view number one, um, but hopefully a little more substantive, a little more nuanced, which is that Gender and sex can be used interchangeably because what it means to be a woman is grounded in sex, like that maleness and femaleness, the sexual differentiation of the species is the ground of the distinction between man and woman, right? So we can't talk about men and women totally detached from that reality. We Mm -hmm. can't just totally detach it. But we can have substantive conversations about how what it means, the ideals of manhood and womanhood are influenced by culture, by one's historical moment. And we can talk about good and bad kind of cultural scripts or interpretations of that reality. But the reality nonetheless exists underneath the script, if that makes sense. Right. Um, so for our purposes, I think, you know, I'm fine using the terms interchangeably um, with that kind of um, definition in mind. Yeah, I think about how we don't live in a vacuum. And so our ideas are shaped by the ideas that have been presented throughout history. And so in your book, you spend a lot of time talking kind of about how these ideas about gender and sex have been shaped by the culture throughout history. And so can you give us maybe some of the high points that have helped us get to where we are today and kind of bring some clarity around this is why today these ideas seem normal to you because ideas that have come before? Right. I mean, in some ways, like the 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 four definitions I just gave, or at least the first three I just yeah. gave, it's almost like a chronology of views, mm. actually. It's it's you know, you have like in the early 20th century, the term gender 
if it was used in this way, it was used in terms of speaking of like the feminine gender meant women. Right. It meant female human beings, right? Or the masculine gender meant masculine human beings, right? So gender and sex. Um, gender also was kind of a linguistic term. So words had gender. Um, but then in, um, especially starting with Simone de Beauvoir's The Second Sex, um, if feminist thought began to come up with a concept about woman being a social construct mm. right now. Simone de Beauvoir doesn't actually use the term gender to name this, but she comes up with the idea. Mm. And then later on, feminist theorists borrow the term gender um, to kind of name that idea that to be a woman is really a work of societal oppression. There's not actually this um, underlying essence to woman that's purely social. And so that was pretty much the dominant view between like sex versus gender, right? So that's second wave feminist thought where sex refers to biology, gender refers to culture. And that stayed pretty consistent until the 90s when you had more kind of postmodern gender theory and queer theory emerge um, through the work of Judith Butler. She's really prominent theorist in this. And that's where she really ups the ante with social construction and says, actually, not only is gender a social construct, but sex itself is a social construct. So basically she argues everything is gender. Even our, even our, you know, our um, script that there are two sexes, yeah. right? That that itself is an oppressive social fiction that we need to un undo. So one thing that I think is really interesting is the emergence of the gender identity theory. Mm -hmm. like how does that work, right? So this is something yeah. I've been puzzling over even after, since finishing the book, because a lot of the things that people say about gender in just kind of the popular space are at odds with the stuff I learned in kind of high, high academic theory. Because in, in the high academic gender theory, you wanted to disrupt categories, right? But what I see now is that the constant proliferation of categories, mm. like there are all these new boxes and new categories and you have to kind of figure out which, you know, are you agender? Are you bigender? Um, are you trans? Are you transmasculine, transfeminism? Are you trans non-binary, right? So um, the, and I think here's the story that I sort of tell about that, which is that um, the the kind of Judith Butler style gender theory, it kind of cleared the deck of any sort of ground of what gender is, mm. right? So kind of stripped everything of meaning. But in its place, people have come up with, it's like taken this new form, I think largely through the influence of social media, right? So there was kind of this interesting intersection between like high theory and then the more populist kind of movements yeah. in the in the brand new social media space in the 2010s. And that's when, you know, all of a sudden we, you know, the normies are like, wait, how come Facebook has, you know, 30 genders to choose from, right? Whenever that happened, like in 2014, everyone right. was like, what's going on here, right? But there, I think this new sort of gender identity kind of theory um, had been percolating and um, on social media, and then it kind of hit mainstream. And so that's, that's where we are now. It's this kind of combination of philosophical movements and like this high level, but then also this bottom-up kind of populist stuff on social media. There is an irony in that, you know, thinking about Judith Butler and her work, and like you said, it's sort of category shattering. Um, and yet, and I'm wondering what it says about how God created us as well, that we need categories, right? It's totally. almost like, mm -hmm. it's an interesting irony, right? And so it's like um, the 
the work of Judith Butler sought to do one thing, but what it really did was kind of create a chaos that maybe nobody really foresaw because of the need to have a ground. You know, you can't see through everything or there's nothing, right? You know? And so, um, I don't know. Have you thought about that? I'm just kind of, as you were talking, I was thinking, I wanted to ask you this question, you know, and you, you sort of answered it, but like when you're in this world, you're immersed in, in the world of gender studies. Was there anything that was like uncomfortable? Like when did you start to realize maybe just on your own, like something's not making sense or Mm. something's bothering me about this? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So that's a great question. I think, and first of all, I will say, I think you're exactly right about your, your, why did this emerge? And I think that's because it's not human beings like by nature desire to know that's what you know aristotle says like we by nature we respond to reality as if it's intelligible as if there's something true to it that we can discern and name right right? and so i think that's why the like radical postmodernism almost nihilistic kind of postmodernism in gender theory has kind of taken this right turn into like almost a new essentialism Mm. where it's like no there is this ground to whether you're male or female or neither and you can discern that, you know, by reflecting on yourself. So it's detached from kind of material reality, or it's not determined by, for example, whether we're male or female. Um, but there's still like a there that they're pointing to, right? Yes. That you can discover something about yourself that's not just purely determined by society. Yeah. So in that way, like there's something a little, maybe a step closer to at least realism, kind of a realist metaphysics in gender identity theory, even though the problem is that it's it's detached from the body, which I think is is the big problem there. But I want to comment really quickly before you jump in mm-hmm. there, because I think this is such a problem of the age and it doesn't just have to do with gender identity. It's identity. The the modern and I the modern lie, and there's truth to it, like mm-hmm. all good lies, that the only way to find out who you truly are is by looking inward, right? Yeah. That this I, we've talked about it on the show mm-hmm. before, but the book, the weariness of the self, and this idea that like only by looking inward can I find out who I am. But then it c- creates this conundrum because then we have to constantly perform that identity for affirmation by others. So you, there's a push and a pull Alan Noble talks about, mm-hmm. who's somebody we've talked about on the show before. But I, that's what's fascinating to me is it's like only I can determine my identity. It's how I feel. And that's what's important. And then this really strange thing happens that we see where it's like, but I need all my followers on social media to affirm what I'm saying yeah. about myself. Right. And what is so interesting and freeing about the Christian worldview is that the gaze of others is really fickle and mean in our society. But when you have God, the creator of the universe, who is love looking at you and saying who you are and affirming the true and beautiful things about you, man, he's always so much more gracious, right? God's so much more gracious than... Well, our social media followers, that's for sure. Um, anyways, uh, just to comment on that. But but yeah, so I, I'm interested in your own story as well. So yeah. Yeah, well, I would say when I was dissertating. Okay. Which, um, <laughs> so when I was writing my PhD. So this was in, the discipline was in literary studies. Okay. And then the the MO at that time, which was you would you would study a kind of a sort of text, like an era of, of texts, like or poetry or fiction, whatever. But then you would take some kind of theoretical system okay, and you would apply, you would interpret the text through that theory. Right. So basically it was like, because there was no worldview, you would, you would find a worldview through a theory 
And then you would interpret the text in terms of that worldview, right? Right. Um, so I just kind of learned this as a method. And most of the time I was just like, okay, I'm just going to do this now. Like, this is what I'm taught to do. And I want to be a good academic. So I'm just going to do the method. But then there were moments where like, I remember when I was writing a dissertation where I would kind of like stick my head up and suddenly think, is any of this true? Mm. Right. Is the theory that I'm reading the text through, like, I, I would have these moments where I'm like, why does this matter? if this text happens to like dialogue with this theory in an interesting way, or this text kind of matches this theoretical construct. And then it's like, well, why does that even matter? Like what's, what's the deeper purpose of the work that I'm doing? Right. Like, Mm. so I would have these moments where I would kind of be like, is all of this just BS, (laughs) you know? (laughs) And then I would just be like too afraid of that thought to pursue it. And I would just kind of go back to, I'd be like, who cares? I got to get this thing done. Right. So um, but there becomes something unsatisfying after a while. And I think later on, this, this sort of been after I was done with my PhD and was a young academic, I just began to get bored with that method. Mm. Especially because when it comes to feminist theory, even though there are meaningful differences between a lot of theorists, there's still it the 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 answer is always assumed from the beginning, which is basically that gender, you know, there's always patriarchal oppression at work and we have to find it and subvert it, you Mm. know? So there was, you know, you would like, oh, let's read Plato's Republic and let's hunt for the sexism. Right. There it is, (laughs) you know? And like, that was kind of it. And I just thought after a while, like it's boring. Right. Yeah. Um, And kind of intellectually stilting. So when I began this kind of slow return to Christianity, I actually felt like so much more, my intellect opened up because all of a sudden I could be receptive to meaning again. I didn't come in here with this assumed narrative that I was then imposing upon a text, right? I was like, oh, I'm going to read Augustine's Confessions and I'm just going to try to understand what he's saying. I'm just going to listen to the text and receive it rather than like, I'm going to read it with suspicion and just find the things that I'm hunting for and then say, this is sexist garbage, right? right? So it's just, there was something like really freeing about oh my gosh, there's truth out there and I can try to look look for it. Mm. You know, that's just a different method. I think what I find interesting about your journey is that the place it seems you landed was in Catholicism. Um, and can you kind of share a little bit about that and kind of the beauty that that uh, provided for you in terms of like this intellectual journey that you were able to re-embark on and I think this idea of being able to find meaning again. And so what kind mm-hmm. of inspired you to to land in that place um, versus somewhere else? Yeah, well, I think if I had to point to one big thing, it would be the incarnation mm-hmm. because that was the one thing that I, I couldn't quite quit Christianity because of that one thing. Yeah. You know, and I, you know, I studied other religions. I remember reading the Quran, studying Islam, Hinduism, but there was, that was unique. Like this, the core belief of Christianity that God himself unites himself with our nature. He comes to us in a body, right? And then he offers up that body for the sake of love for our salvation. I mean, there's just something so powerful. I could never quite let that go, even when I would read it in these like postmodern ways and be like, this is such a beautiful story, right? you know? But then like beginning to be like, wait, but what if it's more than a story? Like, what if it's actually true, right? And so I think, um, because that the incarnation was so important to me, I saw in Catholic worship and tradition such an incarnational mode of Christianity. There's so much embodiment in Catholic worship 
Um, it's very tactile. You're moving your body yeah. um, during worship. It, you know, the culmination is the Eucharist where you're, you know, literally tasting God and welcoming him into your yeah. body. You're putting his body, you know, it's just yeah, very, yeah. like, very bodily. Yeah. Um, but also I think, you know, and I wouldn't have been able to necessarily articulate this at the time, mm. but I think I feel seen as a woman specifically, mm. like in my womanness and in my not manness in Catholicism in a way that I think just impelled me. Like, even if you just walk into a Catholic church, you'll look around and see the presence of the female body mm. kind of all over the place. And that filled, I think, a hunger that I'd had since I was a little girl that like, wow, being a woman is meaningful and that yeah. it matters and it's good. Um, and so I think that really drew me in as well. I love that. I love that there is, and and I think we're getting into this next question that I want to ask. And so I love the way your story is lining up with the truths of, of the gospel and the church. And, and so maybe I want to ask it this way, because I think what you end up offering that book, that fourth way you talk about is so beautiful. So we've been saying things like gender and what's your, you know, how, how to, um, where, where are we today? And yeah. it's culturally fraught and all these kind of things. What, what does the Bible, what does Christianity, let's say, have to offer to this conversation? You started in into it in yeah, that okay. last conversation, yeah. but like, okay, we have this, we're really confused. We've got sort of this Judith Butler comes in and erases, you know, underlying meaning or critiques gender all the way down. And then we have a reaction or something's happening where people are trying to find their identities in all these different categories. Okay, so then enter Christianity. What is in this, you know, conversation that some from the outside are saying this feels crazy. Some are on the inside of it saying, finally, how I feel is being validated. Whatever, right? You have mm -hmm. the spectrum of 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 people who are dealing with this conversation in in different ways. What does Christianity have to offer to this conversation? Yeah, well, I think I think Christianity has a lot to offer. One being salvation. <laughs> or at least like Amen. the map to the one who saves us, right? Amen. To yeah. yeah. Um, and but at the same time, I think there, there there's always tension between Christianity and the culture mm -hmm. in the sense that there are certain there in different times in history, there are certain parts of Christianity that are really in tension with a lot of parts of culture, which framed positively means that there are particular opportunities where aspects of the Christian message can speak to contemporary problems or questions in a profound way. And so I would say what one of those is the dignity of the body mm -hmm. and the givenness of the body. And the, the body not only as something good and something meaningful that has its own inherent meaning, um, but also part of God's self-revelation. Like if you think about the unfolding mm -hmm. story of God's self-disclosure to us, all the visible world is God trying to show us that he exists, right? Because he is spirit, right? He's not right. we're these sensory creatures. So he has to break into our world in ways that are intelligible to us, right? Um, and so that begins with creation itself, with our creation, right? Um, and if you look in, in our creation narratives in Genesis, and if you really pay attention to how important sexual difference is in those narratives, it really becomes clear that 
this is actually the culmination of God's creative work in both of those accounts. Like it's, it's not just the creation of human beings, but it's specifically the creation of human beings as male and female. Mm. Now, most creation narratives are not that concerned about maleness and femaleness, if they even mention it at all. And sometimes it's presented as a negative thing. Like there's human beings and men are awesome and women are kind of weird, but we need them for some reason, you know, <laughs> like that's not an uncommon kind of view um, in some, in some cosmologies, but in, in our cosmology, right. Which our creation narrative, which is about, which discloses to us where we come from in order to illuminate who we are and what we're made mm -hmm. for. We see a story of our sexual differentiation as being an image of the Trinity itself, right? right? Because in Christianity, our understanding of God that has been revealed to us is that God himself is an interpersonal communion who is life-giving, mm. right? And so as male and female, we have the capacity there for a kind of interpersonal communion mm -hmm. that is also capable of generating new life. So our maleness and femaleness is part of the way that we carry God's image in us, right? So there's this dignity and this importance um, that goes beyond just the realm of nature, but actually points to the supernatural. And discovering this is like, it's so beautiful because even though I spent, you know, most of my adulthood immersed in this question, like this preoccupation of woman, I never actually got a satisfying account of what it means to be a woman and why it's a good thing. Mm -hmm. In fact, I, the accounts I got were almost like, yeah, it's kind of a sucky thing, you know, mm -hmm. like being a woman is to be oppressed. And being female, you know, is not great because you can get pregnant, which is scary, you know, and there's this suspicion toward femaleness, ironically, in a lot of feminist thought that there's this assumption that women, in order to become free, must become as much like men as possible. Right. So I think our culture has this disdain for the body, but especially the female body. Mm. You know, there is just not a love for the female body in our culture. Um, the female body needs to be kind of flattened and starved to be this aesthetic image, this sexual image. But our fertility, our capacity for motherhood, whether or not we actually actualize that in a biological way, the fact that it's seen as deeply good and that it opens us to love and it's a gift that we can carry into the world, um, that was just a new, it was, in, it was just a new narrative. Right. And that was the one I was the one I was hungry for. Like, I just wanted to know that being a woman was a good thing and that it mattered. The way you articulated that now, but also in the book, there's a poetry in the way you talk about being a woman. There's a being a human. Um, th that idea that we part of what it means um, to be in an, like God in a good way. It is uh, to be male and female. Um, that was his plan. It wasn't like a mistake. Um, right. the, the fact that men and women, as they enter a holy communion and then commune with, with each other, we are in some way reflecting as image bearers. We're mm. reflecting the same way that God is an interpersonal community within, yeah. the, within it, the Trinity, right? Um, we are able to participate in that and that it results in new life, uh, obviously new spiritual life from God yeah. and, and obviously new physical life, but new physical life as male and female. The picture of that is just so 
beautiful. And I think it's something our culture needs today because to your point, yeah, you know, I think there is this question out there and uh, it's what does it mean to be a man? What does it mean to be a woman? Why is that good? Why is the difference good? Should we not have different, all these kind of big questions that are either assumed or stated out there, this view answers in a way that's just captures something so beautiful. I mean, I, I have, you know, I think about my daughter and I'll never forget, I bought this book about like a uh, hundred radical females, you know, and I would like want her to feel strong and empowered. And like, I'm, we're reading through it together and it's like, this lady's an astronaut and this woman discovered this. And then it's like, and this was the first man who said he was a woman. And I remember being like, oh, you know, and I'm like, how did it, this is my very like unfiltered, mm-hmm. you know, but like. I can't even read this book with my daughter without like a guy being on the top hundred women. Mm. Like what is happening, you know? And that's, I'm, that is not a pastoral heart. And I understand that because I would want to engage with that individual, obviously in a very different way. Mm -hmm. But, um, all these questions in my own mind started to pop up. Like, how do I, the society today wants to look at my daughter and say, the best thing you can do is kind of lead. And she's a very girly girl. She mm-hmm. is, right? Mm-hmm. Um, she loves kind of floating through life, and she has two brothers, and she's <laughs> tough with them and all these kind of things, but she's brilliant and yeah. loves beauty, and mm-hmm. I want to be able to cultivate that, but I know she's going to be dashed against the rocks of a culture that, mm-hmm. that in a way, to your to, to what you're saying, Dr. Favali, is like, um, those things about your womanhood shouldn't be embraced. If you want to be, mm-hmm. if you want to be taken seriously, it needs to look like this. Or maybe on the other side would be like a really strange conservative view that would also seek to push yeah. her down. Yes. But in this book and in what you're talking about, I found a way of speaking to her again that uh, that gives what you just said dignity purpose, meaning yeah. to uh, what it means to be female, what it means to be created female. And so I'm just so thankful to you uh, for the work uh, because it, it personal, you know, it was personal for me, but also just really exciting to find. So I don't know, Elizabeth. The word that stood out to me as you were talking, um, and I will echo Adam's words, is just the the beauty of the way that you communicated. Mm-hmm. Um, the truth and value of just what it means to be made in the image of God as a woman. The word that brings in my ears was dignity. And I think even as a church, because uh, I've grown up in conservative traditions, and so I, with other women who have been in those spaces, struggle because it is been, I don't feel dignity or beauty from this space about what it means to be female. And so that causes this, well, let me look for it elsewhere, Mm. right? Let me look for a better definition a better kind of meaning because the meaning here feels very oppressive or restrictive or like you're not va- you're not as valuable. We're happy you're here, but you're here to serve the purposes of helping the other gender be great. Your greatness is optional. Their greatness is um, necessary. necessary. Yeah. And again, that <laughs> it relates to a whole lot of more complicated theological reflection. But it is this idea that that our God has chosen to image himself in both male and female. And as you said, it's a culmination of his creative act. And, and I do, I'm in this history um, uh, place, reading lots of books on church history. And I think I appreciate being reminded of how the creation narrative was placed 
as a, a measure of truth against competing creation narratives. Yes, mm-hmm. yes. And so for us to understand the, the, the significance of what we're told, you can only really understand when you understand what they would have heard before. And so to understand that male and female in other uh, nations or other cultures doesn't have the same beauty and dignity that we see present in the biblical text. But it, to me, it just is, man, it's also... I think going back, it is a moment and opportunity for the church to reconsider the ways in which we have not fully told the story that provides dignity and beauty to both genders. Because I do believe that some of the the movement we see from people uh, finding meaning in places outside of the Christian tradition is because we haven't done a great job of telling the truth which is the dignity and beauty you look for is here. Mm. Um, you have meaning here. We need you. You help us show what God is like in this world. Yes. I I, I think maybe to just like put a final note on that mm-hmm. thought, it seems like the world, and this is something I did encounter too in conservative, I grew up in a conservative evangelical mm-hmm. setting. And so it seems like both our culture, but also some conservative forms of Christianity they value women for what they do, not mm. for what they are. And I think here, what, what the church can pro- what provide, what Christianity can provide, is a robust and beautiful account of what women are and how we can bring the gifts of our nature to what we do in all sorts of spheres, right? It's not about doing, but it's about being. Yeah. Um, and that there's a goodness to my nature as a woman mm-hmm. that can you know, feed into my work here as a professor, but also my work as a mother, right? So these, in all spheres of my life. That's really beautiful and helpful. I have a couple more questions I want to ask, okay? I'm sorry. We could cover so much, but, um, and there's so much richness and depth here. And I just, again, want to um, really commend the book, uh, The Genesis of Gender, A Christian Theory. I want to commend the book to our listeners, um, but uh, just for more, right? Because um, we only have so much time. So, moving us along, we you do root, and I think Christianity does root um, part of what it means to be a woman, uh, part of what it means to be a man, and we alluded to it a minute ago, in the ability to procreate. Ability is probably the wrong word, but in the um, uh, possibility of procreation. Yes. So can yeah. you speak, though, to either those who are choosing to be celibate or maybe mm-hmm. those who uh, are unable to get pregnant. And this idea and definition does not leave them out, right? And so maybe if right. you could speak to that, yeah. Right. So, yeah, the idea here is that gender is grounded in generativity, right? In other words, like the ground of meaning for gender, what madness and woman is, the ground of meaning is generativity. So our our distinct potential and our inherent potential when it comes to generation uh, or procreation. And so I speak the word potential here intentionally because whether or not this potential, in my case, I'm a woman. So in whether or not my potential for motherhood is ever actualized in a biological way or my potential for gestation, right, as I'm a mammal, um, it exists, right? It existed and affected my life when I was a girl, even before I had my own children, certainly in my years of motherhood. It will continue to affect my life even after I've had hit menopause, you know, so it's it's not about the actualization of the potential, but actually how the potential itself influences our lives and opens us up in certain ways. 
And because in a Christian under, so I guess one to flag something, it does include then anyone who struggles with infertility. In fact, the category infertility refers to an inherent potential that is unable to be actualized for some reason. Right. Right. So even the category of of infertility kind of signals the definition that I'm talking about. Um, And, but also because in a Christian understanding, we are body soul beings, we're unities of body and soul. Right. We're not, we are material beings, but we're not just material beings, right? We also are spiritual beings. So there's, that means that there's a spiritual dimension to this potential for motherhood, this potential for fatherhood, that in a mature human being is kind of cultivated and developed and brought to fruition. I mean, it's it's funny because like in you know the Catholic tradition, like most of the theologians and philosophers who formed my understanding of the dignity of the body and the dignity of the generativity of the body mm-hmm. are celibate men and women. Right. Right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they're nuns, they're priests. Um, so they're people for whom they never actually were married, they didn't have their own children biologically, but nonetheless, they brought their own kind of genius, their masculine genius or their feminine genius into their work and into their theological work. And so there's there's a meaning that's grounded in generativity, but it's not reduced to generativity. Mm. Um, so I think someone who's called to a celibate vocation is still very much called to a kind of motherhood or fatherhood mm-hmm. that I think is is really important a kind of a fostering of someone else's potential of developing um you know kind of nurturing people whether in body or soul right so we still have that potential that needs to be cultivated even if it's not going to happen in like a, a kind of biological parenthood mm-hmm. way yeah yeah I love that and I love um you know, in a culture that there is to a degree, it's not, you know, you could overstate this, but there is a growing disdain for motherhood and fatherhood. There is a the inherent dignity of being a mom, the inherent dignity of being a dad that's reintroduced uh, into this culture, cultural moment through uh, the Christian story that you explained so well. I think it's just important for us to hear, you know, it's so important for this cultural moment, you know, um, and and I I love it I love it I, it pro- provides deep meaning so it's just another reason f- if you are out there and you're kind of um, wondering what it means to be a man or a woman it's another another place to find deep meaning and purpose yeah yeah I think to think that deeply embedded within our divine design is the potential um, for fruitfulness and that the realizing that potential in one way or another. Um, so whether physically or spiritually is part of what it means for us to be human in this world. And so I think even to speak to, you know, people pushing back against motherhood or fatherhood for whatever reason and to understand, especially for the church, um, I think that it to me it points back to this idea of family and not necessarily nuclear family, but the family of God. Right. And so my ability to fully realize the potential that God has for me comes with me giving of myself in this way to provide fruitfulness for other people in my community, especially as a, I'm saying this as a single woman who lives, leads a celibate life. Um, and so, you know, it just is, to me, it adds this depth and, and, and to what it means for us to move through this world and that I need to cultivate that which has been planted inside of me 
in order to fully live to the potential of what God has created me to be and do. Mm. Um, and when I don't do that, I think also we push up against uh, the cultural narratives of really individualism and selfishness. It's right. like to be you means you have to live in community and give of yourself to others in ways yeah. that produce life in them. And when you don't do that, mm -hmm. there's there's something that, I, I don't know if to say that we're not living to the fullness. There's not a full flourishing or mm -hmm. full de like development, mm -hmm. mature development. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I remember once at a conference listening to some Franciscan nuns talk about how, you know, they, I mean, they're nuns, right? So they're not married. They're not going to have um, biological children, but that they actually, they track their cycles. They track their menstrual cycles mm -hmm. and they kind of live in their community in the rhythm of that, where like, you know, generally when a woman's in, in kind of an ovulation mode, she's more creative. She's, mm -hmm. She wants to kind of create. And then the luteal phase after ovulation, yeah. there's almost this like retreat mode where you kind of just have to like withdraw and restore. Yeah. And so they actually like make room for that in their community mm -hmm. life, like the kind of natural rhythm of a woman's cycle. And so it's, it's that kind of wisdom, yeah. I think, that we just, there's so much wisdom there to yeah. think about, you know, my nature as a woman and how I can like live in harmony with that. And there's a kind of spiritual wisdom that it brings. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, it's definitely not just for like, married people sure. at all you know it really is about um it's it's about our nature mm. as human beings yeah one person that i have in mind is and maybe it's just my pastoral heart but you know the longer we're in this we're in the world we're uh, you know in the world not of it um we're gonna run into people who are struggling with mm -hmm. their identity we're we are ministering to trans people we are ministering to um those who are struggling and there is a really beautiful part in the book um, Dr. Favalli, where you talk about, I think, I think in some conservative circles, Christian circles, there's a suspicion that we look at the trans person with, and it's kind of like, man, this seems so other. I don't even, you know, I don't really know how to connect. And even if you have the heart, that's like, man, I really want to like empathize. It just seems so foreign to a lot of people, maybe not everybody, but some, and you do such a good job of talking about, um, your own vulnerable vulnerable feelings towards your own body uh, through childbirth, through becoming a mother, you know, and how that allowed you to see into and maybe empathize with trans uh, people. Can you just talk about that a little bit? Sure. Yeah. So, I mean, first of all, I don't want to say that I'm, you know, I'm, of course. I can like speak for trans of course. people or something because I've, but what I did notice in you know, as part of the process of writing that book, just hearing a lot of personal stories mm -hmm. of people who've transitioned or who've experienced gender dysphoria. And there are so many different stories, like not almost no two are alike, right. but there were, there were themes, there were threads that I could see. Um, and in some of the accounts, especially of, from females who had struggled with gender and felt gender incongruence, like some, sometimes the way they described it reminded me of Kind of the struggles I've had postpartum, where I I don't know if I maybe calling it just body dysmorphia, um, and struggling with with a lot of anxiety in that time, and feeling as like, really having this acute almost physical sense that like my body is not my body, mm. like it's this other thing <laughs> that has completely like revolt. Like I can't even look at it in the mirror because you know just an almost yeah. physiological wanting to kind of erase it or be free from it in a certain way. And so, um, uh, so I saw in that just some resonances, I think with, with some of the first person accounts of what gender dysphoria can be like. Um, and, 
And so those experiences are very real, right? And they're very personal. And I think, I think it's important. I think it's important to be like really radically receptive to the person. Right. And whatever he or she is struggling with. And I almost think we need to almost almost like normalize struggling with one's gender in our time because it's like, I almost feel like the people who don't struggle with their gender, it's like, well, what's wrong with them? Because there are so <laughs> many, I think, influences that we're under. And especially with this new immersive technology of the internet that is new to our species and that we're just kind of beginning to learn its effects on us and what a disembodied kind of realm that is. Um, and certainly the influence of pornography on how young girls and boys who are exposed to that at an early age come to view what it means to be a man or a woman, right? There are so many like cultural influences right now that seem almost tailor-made to mess with our understanding of gender and to mess with a sense of like integration and acceptance of our bodies. Mm. And so people for whom this becomes like really pronounced, I think, you know, need to be met with compassion. They need to be listened to and almost kind of affirmed in the, yes, like this is, this is something that is, is really, um, a struggle of our time that they didn't ask for, you right. know, they didn't ask to be kind of born in this weird cultural milieu. Um, and so there's a lot of complexity, I think, in the personal experience that could be happening. Um, but also I think it's important to realize too, that there's, that the desire behind, um, wanting to transition that there are that those are good design like it's a desire for wholeness mm. right it's a desire for that sense of integration with one's body it's a desire for the body to be meaningful and so the desire is like for these really deeply kind of christian desires mm. um so the problem isn't even what a person is longing for but the problem i think is that that's been in our time, the solution that's offered is like technological modification, yeah. right. right? That doesn't see us as having a given nature that, you know, is connected to our happiness and flourishing as human beings, right? So the problem isn't like the person, right? Mm -hmm. The problem is this, this narrative, right? this false story mm -hmm. that's been offered um, in response to, mm -hmm. to very real and good desires. You know, gender... And sex, sexuality are just really complicated conversations. Um, and when I think about one of kind of the struggles the church has is we don't give space for the complexity. Um, we don't have, you know, the right language. We haven't done, we haven't read, like we just haven't taken the time to think substantively. So even as you, you, you talk about uh, the compassion that we can offer our trans brothers and sisters for this lack of wholeness and integration that they are, it's a real feeling. Um, it's like, have we thought substantively about the better story that we offer them right. um, through the gospel? And it's not simple, right? There's complexity of how do I engage with their experiencing with the truth of the gospel story? But we know is that the gospel, the biblical narrative, the Christian story offers us the truest meaning for what it means to be human, what it means to be male and female. And I think this beauty and dignity that we've talked about, this reality that we were created out of um, this triune overflow of love, this, this life-giving trinity to be life-giving beings ourselves. Mm. Um, and so even as you are listening this conversation, I want to invite you to continue the journey of, of learning about this, uh, because I think one of uh, the, we have a good opportunity to be able to show people the beautiful and loving community that is the church 
by being able to offer people substantive uh, points of thought or even uh, conversation in this in this um, topic, but it requires work for us as a church to be able to engage in the deep ends that maybe we haven't done as well as we ought to. And so thank you, Dr. Favale, for your work. And just for the beauty that you have just invited us to see even in this conversation, and I would invite our listeners to just grab your book uh, to continue to dive deeper into what to me is just the beauty of what it means to be human, to be male and female, and how we get that from our triune God. Well said. Thank you for listening to Culture Matters. This episode is produced by Chelsea Conway with editing and support from The Good Podcast Company. If you're a regular follower of the podcast, we would love to hear from you. You can message us on social. Check the show notes for more information on how best to connect with us, as well as connect with our guests and ways to support their work. See y'all next time.